a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you today and talking about legal issues, social narratives, and what we're doing to our society. Uh, that's what I brought Philip Miller in for. Phil was an infantry officer with over 13 years in the Canadian forces. He is the CEO and principal lawyer for Miller's Law, which is a boutique litigation law firm based out of Ontario. Here he goes by the handle The Rogue Lawyer. Phil is a senior consultant for Third Eye Insights Incorporated, which is a marketing agency. And he regularly takes on bullies and likes to stir shit up. So this podcast is uh, about getting people to ask some more questions. So go look him up and uh, check out some of his podcast appearances. Got some really interesting content. So glad to have him on here and some of his time today. So welcome, Phil. Happy to be here. And I opened up an office in Calgary two years ago. So we now have law firm in Alberta and Ontario. Awesome. Although uh, Alberta is a little bit more solicitor focused, but I love the province and see myself moving there in the near future. Good stuff. Full time. <laughs> is it? Well, what? Well, how come you would move here just to run the business? Or are you from here originally? Uh, I'm not from there. I acquired a law firm that was a small one that was in Alberta, and I have a bunch of military buddies from there. And I just love the outdoors. And, you know, it's kind of like the Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, to California, to what Alberta is, to Ontario at the moment. <laughs> yes, that is an accurate way to describe it. Um, well, maybe we'll start kind of at the beginning. Tell us a bit about yourself, where you come from, and uh, how you go from the army into uh, lawyer business. Yeah, I think you, you achieve perspective sometimes from a almost an accidental range of experience. Uh, you know, I didn't. I was an entrepreneur in high school. Then my dad lost his business, so we didn't have as much money, even though we used to have it. Then I became kind of a hippie in university. Then somebody dared me to join the army, and I joined the army and ended up doing really well there. Uh, went into our infantry, our airborne, was in charge of our snipers, um, did some high-end operations, and then um, ended up losing my eyesight in my right eye, and the army uh, sent me to law school, which was a nice... Uh, Nice change of pace, even though I would have stayed in the military forever. And I uh, was a crown attorney for a while. That still had other businesses, so I've always been involved in businesses. I left the crown attorney's office, honestly, because I felt like I was putting innocent people in jail because defense lawyers sucked. And I hated the Ministry of Attorney General, which didn't really let lawyers progress based on performance. It was very bureaucratic. Like, do your time. It was just... So then I went into my business for myself after I went to a big law firm for a while, started my own firm. And, you know, in the army, I did psychological operations training from reaching warfare. And that's how I got into marketing and strategy. And, you know, all of these experiences combined have done some high end cases, uh, I think, have led me to be in a good position in my 50s. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, you're going to have a very unique perspective on things, especially having been on both sides of the law when you're talking about the crown mm-hmm. side and then doing some of the defense stuff in your current practice, mm-hmm. uh, do you mainly fall into the category of doing defense law, uh, like criminal law, 
or do you do other forms of it and there's someone else at the firm that does the defense side? Yeah, we have a bunch of lawyers. Like in Alberta, we do mostly solicitor work, which is you know corporate or real estate. But in Ontario, we have a boutique litigation firm that I try to run like a special forces unit and we do personal injury litigation and criminal defense. Okay. Most we only do criminal offense that's cash based, so we don't do kind of the legal aid guilty plea rounders. But I enjoy taking on the big cases where somebody comes in and says, "Look, man, I'm innocent. Save my life." Uh, th- that gives me the adrenaline I miss from jumping out of planes. There's <laughs> nothing. There's nothing higher stakes than a good uh, than a good criminal case. So I do about two a year. I have coming up in September a court martial for the highest ranking uh, officer in the Canadian Forces ever, General Whalen, where. There's a BS historic complaint about against him and the Trudeau government's cast him out. That'll be big in the papers. So okay. I like taking on those big ones, uh, the big cases. I also defend police officers every once in a while, but when they can get away from the association, forcing them to take their own people, they yeah. have defended some fire chiefs, had some big stuff, but a little criminal personal injury pays the bills and, you know, and the consulting is what's interesting right now. Yeah, so you're doing the consulting. Is it's Third Eye Insights Incorporated? Yeah. What um, What exactly do you do there, or what uh, business are they involved with? My partner on that is a digital marketing savant who really understands branding. Hmm. And if you look them up, you'll see her videos. Um, she's just an expert in how to build a brand. But it's interesting, and it, it, there's an overlap into trial work and even business because everything is messaging. So if you want to get a promotion, you have to message properly to your boss. Mm-hmm. If you want to sell something, you have to message. If you want to build a business, most people don't have a strategy. They have a product and an idea, and they don't know how to take a strategy and message it to the right target audience. And the digital world gives you quite a bit more leeway to do it. So I focus on the art of storytelling. So I can tell a story about a human that creates sympathy or empathy, or I can tell a story about a product. But I'll go into big businesses and meet with the CEO and kind of help them deal with some leadership issues and strategy issues. That we'll usually do a rebrand. So that's what that business is. But it seems very different, but it's not that different from me standing in front of a jury and trying to persuade them with my story as opposed to the other counsel's story, whether it's a, mm. I'm suing an insurance company or uh, it's a, a criminal case. Okay. And who are you... Um... I want to just go back a little bit to the defense side of things because you were talking about like the bully side of uh, of it and it sounds like you deal with really big um, files if you're doing one or two a year. Mm. Who are you mainly defending against or are you defending people that have just, you know, been charged with drug trafficking or are you talking like the Canadian government is coming after someone or a big corporation? Where do you kind of fall? I defended one protester who threw pebbles at Justin Trudeau and they tried to bury that guy. Okay. And then I subpoenaed Justin Trudeau and I had him one day away from being on the stand. And really? They ended up resolving it. Uh, you know, I've defended police officers who have been charged. Uh, I understand the use of force mm. as an unarmed combat instructor. And so, like, you know, and I understand the concept of being tried by 12 and carried by six. I don't think most people really understand how to apply those defenses. And I think too often you just get a lawyer. You know, I get really disappointed when I see a lawyer who is, he used to be a copies lawyer, but he doesn't really understand. They use him because he's been used, but in order to kind of save a police officer or somebody who's innocent, you really have to speak to the 
the judge or the jury's hearts and minds. And so you need an elevated ability to tell a story. Yeah. You need to be able to make people cry sitting in the jury box. It's not just about having a degree and, you know, you, you were in canine at one point. Like you need to be able to make people feel. Uh, you know, I've done a couple of high end murders where a uh, guy's wife was killed. He didn't do it. It ended up being a boyfriend, but they got tunnel vision at the investigation perspective. Okay. And decided it was him two days after and just went to town on him. Did hmm. a giant Mr. Big. Like it was, it was unbelievable. But in the end, we were able to kind of showcase that it was boyfriend that showed up and nobody knew about him oh really well you know those those challenges are awesome and uh yeah what i've always found is especially when you go against the government whether it's uh when you're being charged with something serious or you're going against them from a business perspective or trying to challenge a vaccine mandate it's overwhelmingly uh you're an overwhelming underdog yeah. Right. When when the whole power of the state can come on to you, uh, and you know, I find I know you 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 probably have a a bunch of law enforcement listening. You know, prosecuting a legal aid case is different than than a, a cash case. I don't represent drug dealers, but you know, when somebody gets caught up in something and they say they're innocent, like I had a shaken baby case where a really wonderful human being's kid had a stroke. Oh, okay. Yeah. Took him to the hospital, and then the doctor said this dad shook the baby and mm-hmm. caused it. But just just thinking about it, though, it was a three month old preemie baby, and they said that he shook the baby so hard, like this, that it caused internal bleeding. And I had to tell these fucking doctors, "Where is the neck injury?" Yeah. Anybody who's held a baby knows you're supposed to cradle the neck. But this guy didn't see his child for three years. He had two children. He didn't see any of them for three, for three years until two lawyers wouldn't take the case because they said it was unwinnable. I took the case and finally got him reunited. But everybody on the other side thought he was a bastard until we were able to show in the science impossible to shake a baby mm-hmm. that hard without damaging the neck. And, and then we actually identified that there was a bone issue because there was a, little, a lot of micro fractures. We had brittle bone disease. That one was on W5, but that was a. Those type of cases I like, but yeah. Well, so do you get um, do you get people that come in and you say no, I'm not taking that, or it's like no, you, you know, is there a? Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of people just get the perception that a, a defense lawyer, just on face value, mm-hmm. is almost a soulless position, <laughs> at least in the criminal side. Yeah. When we deal with some of these guys that are like you know, the biggest fentanyl bust or 600 guns coming over the border. And it's like, okay, some defense lawyer is actually going to def- defend that guy. Do you get cases that you actually say no? You're like, no, like you actually murdered that person. I'm not doing that. Like, I don't care you know, what happens to you. Yeah. Most, of, most of them don't pay. Like there are certain, you know, the drug organizations use certain lawyers that they can generally control. Mm-hmm. Like I find often the ones who are representing them, whether it's the HA, they're, they're often controllable. Yeah. I couldn't work for those people because somebody would end up getting killed because I'm not going to be controlled. But I also, you know, you have a job having seen both sides of the fence. Like they're both in cahoots. Like everybody's making money off the same system. Nobody's really, Mm. I used to tell the crowns, I'm like, why are we, why are we running these bullshit cases? But you don't have enough people to get the bad guys. Like the, the good lawyers aren't being assigned to the big cases 
and they're they're busy dealing with you know ten times more domestics because they have obligations to charge everything. Police have lost discretion on the streets, so the whole system is overwhelmed. People are being overheld. Like I said, no for sure, but I, I you know probably one of the harder cases I took was a person who was. Um, he did molest a child, but I remember when I was a crown, I was trying to prosecute a case and no counsel would represent that guy. Mm, yeah. So he was self-representing, but we couldn't get it into the trial. And the hardest thing about prosecuting these people is usually the kid has to take the stand. Okay. And I remember there was a senior guy who took the case and did his job, but I was thankful he took the case because it allowed me to put the guy in jail. Yeah. You know, And so I had a case where a guy had done something. I, I, I interviewed him. Turns out he had been abused his whole life, and I convinced him to plead guilty rather than was guilty, you know, and got a decent sentence for him. So yeah. it's a hard, it's, it's easy to cast labels. Like if, if you're on one side of it, you think all cops are assholes. Yeah. Right? Who are bullies who just, right? And I'm always telling people that's not the case. If you're on the other side, you know, people ask, how do you defend a guilty person? I try not to. My policy is not to take people that I think are guilty because they don't. One, they don't pay, mm. right? Yeah. If somebody believes they're innocent, you know, it, it's worth it. But also, you got to hold the system accountable because, you know, as in the army, there are always people who will take shortcuts. There are always people who will rush to judgment. There are always people who will lay the boots. Like, I've laid the boots to people in the past. Like, so that you need these met. If there was no accountability for making a mistake, even though you say this person's guilty, you should just get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. I'm like, well, you should do your job properly. Yeah. Right. And, and there's only a few people who could hold them accountable. So that's how I answered that. Oh, it's, it's spot on. I 100%, 100% agree. Um, I like the, how you talk about the natural transition to from with the storytelling piece. So you are in the military and then you come out, but you're, you're telling stories as a lawyer, trying to make people feel things. Now you're into the marketing world, um, which is a lot of emotion driven. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, do you find, is that something that kind of interests you? Are you moving away from the law now? Or are you always kind of going to still be involved with the law? There is nothing like the adrenaline of a jury trial. Mm. You know, and I tell people, you know, my first night jump at 700 feet in Camp Landing, Florida, with a full rucksack where I hit another parachute, that was less terrifying than waiting for a jury verdict of a guy who I know didn't kill his wife. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, it, there's something weird about it. It gives me goosebumps. Like being in personal danger isn't as scary. I think this exists with police guys and girls too, who will go into dangerous situations. But when somebody depends on you for their life and the whole jury thing, it does become a very, it's a very intense moment to wait for a jury verdict. So I always want, I, I, I need a bit of adrenaline in my life. So I always have that element. But I have gotten tired of dealing with, with our system where it's kind of unnecessarily adversarial and divorce and family court is one of those things. I, I would never do that, but mm-hmm. the lawyers make money off of the misery of the people. And it's, it's not, it's unlike the special units I used to be in. I'm tired of the unnecessary aggression from people who are outwardly brave, but inwardly cowards. Okay. You know, and that's a lot of what the legal system is. So I love, I like the consulting, marketing angle because I can go into a business owner who's got 20 employees and actually change their life and move forward. So less conflict and I've had enough conflict in my life, but I'll always be doing both. And I think they really complement each other. 
what do you think really drives you to be um, to be the person to go pick the fight, uh, to go against the grain? But what what is it? Uh, maybe it's something like a prior experience, or is it just throughout your whole life, just things you've seen that have maybe pushed you in that direction? Because um, I definitely like even creating this podcast. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people said, there's no chance in hell a constable is going to have a podcast and be allowed to say pretty much anything. I'm like, there's still rules or certain lines you have to make sure you toe a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the most part, um, nobody's telling me what to say on here or what to do. And um, I just wonder, like, where are the other people who are looking to do that? So when I watch some of your content, that's what I see. So mm-hmm. where does that come for you? Where does that come from? Yeah, first of all, good for you too on on providing a voice. Um, because, well, it, it, it's a it's a sidebar, but there is so much uh, long term disability occurring in the police forces these days, mm-hmm. you know. And I've tried to help that, and I think it's because a lot of officers just being asked to do shitty jobs all day, and they don't see the benefit of it. And then the chain of command. Um, because like the military, often the people get promoted are sometimes political. And then you don't really have a connection to your chain of command. Yeah. You feel like you're just being abused everywhere. And I think podcasts like yours that bring people on and have real conversations that can be emotional or even just real allow, you know, we want to, I would like to see some pride come back into the first responder world and not just the nonsense flag waving, but the whole, like we, I suggested to one police force and you should canvas this with yours is, Lawyers are one of the least happy professions in the world. And police officers right now have a bad morale and a lot of mental break, mental health issues and LTD. Huge lack of camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. And once you get down into that kind of broken category, nobody ever comes back. So you got to fix people before they get down. But I've found that meaning makes your life matter. And so how do you get meaning when you're just like, Jesus, I'm going out to do the shift again, or I'm just going to do another stupid motion. What I want to do with police forces, <laughs> I suggested at one point is give, give police officers three days a month or whatever, two days a month or whatever, where they get paid, but they're free to do whatever they want in terms of developing youth connection. Yeah. Because think of what you might do. But if I had two days a month that I was paid, I had to work. You know, where would I go to affect the community in a positive way? Because, you know, when you arrest people, you generally don't, you don't see the benefit later. You just kind of process them, don't see them. Maybe if it's on a major crime case, you'll get a conviction and it's good. But, you know, it'd be nice if you could kind of go to a local YMCA, you know, in over a year, really see that you're kind of making friends with the youth community. But instead, you know, they make everybody go together so the chief can cut a ribbon and it's just, yeah. Those type of conversations I hope you have. Um, but I think coming out of the military where you're almost killed a few times and you've seen a bunch of people die, uh, going into law just makes you a different human. Like these, a lot of these people are terrified of, of even looking stupid for a second. Yeah. Right? Whereas I don't care if a judge is yelling at me. I just care if I'm doing something meaningful. And I, I've just found that doing something meaningful usually requires an element of risk and suffering. But once you get through it, you know, people come to you and you change lives and it's nice. So. It's weird. I love the name of your podcast, The Quiet Professional, because when I was in the Airborne and those units, like the, the culture that I loved is that we don't brag. Mm. We just quietly get the job done. 
and don't ask for recognition. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of our law enforcement are doing the same thing. Yeah, well, that's kind of where I drew this name from was looking at special forces. And then I heard a few references where it was used in law enforcement. But it, I just, it just got me thinking about all the stuff that, you know, going through COVID and police still had to go in. And I remember every single call that would come out, it would have, <clears throat> this person said they're COVID positive. And I was like, no matter what people think about the virus or disease, um, it's like, I just, it just got me thinking every single call we go to, you're literally being told like, this thing here is going to kill you. This call is going to kill you. It's mm-hmm. like a gun call. This person's armed. They're shooting people. Well, you're still going. Um, and we don't, we don't go in and go like, hey, I want, I want medals after this call. Yeah. You do that day in and day out. And a mm-hmm. lot of the time, a lot of the people who put in that hard effort, um, the real leaders, I'll say, they're not, uh, not recognized appropriately. Whereas, like you're kind of saying, there's a lot of political uh, types that get promoted and they're the ones kind of mm-hmm. getting all this stuff. <laughs> No, and it kills morale. It, it kills morale, and it's uh, it, it, it's an issue for almost every police force and the Canadian military. But uh, I, you might enjoy. I uh, I lobbied the the Ford government at COVID hard. I actually went on TV and criticized them because um, everybody was talking about COVID. But when I de- when well, in the military, when we deploy to an operational theater, we get paid danger pay. Right, so you might have your salary as a sergeant or a captain, but if you deploy overseas to Afghanistan or Yugoslavia or some African mission, you get paid almost double, sometimes triple, because you're now in an operational environment that's dangerous, and it's a six-month deployment or whatever. But I was like, during COVID, while everybody else is hiding in their basement, we got these first responders out there, and so they're at an increased risk because we didn't really know how bad COVID was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I said the Ford government. Stop talking about this. Give them some danger pay. Yeah, they're working when everybody else is sitting eating Cheetos and playing Call of Duty or watching Netflix. And fucker wouldn't respond to me until I went on TV on the morning show and personally called him out. And then five days later, he gave everybody four four bucks an hour or more. First responders, nurses, EMS, please, but never mentioned me, the bastard. <laughs> but I just thought I think that's acknowledging that you know you. You guys don't get compensated for that extra yeah. going to those dangerous calls. Maybe you do if you get into a better unit or something. Well, and I mean, they were giving people at supermarkets, what were they calling it? Like hero pay or something. And like, oh but you're standing behind this glass wall and you're just scanning people's stuff and sanitizing the hell out of yourself. But it, yeah, and then when we come out of this, actually a whole bunch of police services had their uh, uh, collective bargaining uh, agreements come due. and. It was just funny. I'm like, well, hopefully they're giving some raises at this point because all that retro retro is going to essentially look like danger pay mm. <laughs> to some to some extent. But can I ask you a question about policing in Alberta, in Edmonton, and Calgary? I don't know if they do it in Edmonton, Give her. but I was going to do a video rant ripping into the police because <laughs> I was sitting at a bar on a Friday, and all of a sudden this gang unit came in. And it was like six guys all jacked up like they're going on a Delta Force mission and uh, to get Bin Laden. You know, they're walking around talking to the chicks. And when I went outside, there's a homeless guy with his pants down fucking smoking meth. Mm. And, and I just see in the cities, like, I, I wouldn't want to do those things. But like, if, you, if I was a student at university and I did that, I would be nailed, right? 
starting fires. And it's just, I just see like the police, maybe they're not being told, but like, why aren't they dealing with, they're not homeless, they're drug addicts, Mm -hmm. right? And they're just breaking the law. I have a downtown spot in Calgary and there's always like fires in the back with people smoking meth and taking shits on the road. And a cop will drive by while homeless. My daughter is taking the train and getting accosted every day by people screaming at her. Yeah. And, but I, I can have seven guys walking through a bar as a gang unit acting like tough guys talking to chicks at the bar. I'm like, I, I don't see gang activity that's dealt in the open at bars with pretty girls. Like, why are they doing that, you know? So, well, this falls right into what I do. So I work with our gang suppression team. We go through mm-hmm. all the venues. So all the licensed premise and other places that we're mm-hmm. agents of. There's um, civil agreements we have with certain venues. Mm-hmm. Uh, to act on their behalf. Uh, a lot of people don't know the people that they're sitting beside. So not every gangster is wearing uh, Hell's Angels cut. A lot of them are... No, no, I got that. No, they own the bars, but... Yeah, a lot of them are the owners. Like, so it, it's like, oh, we have agreements with the bars, but organized crime owns the bars. Like for the most part, it's a laundering or whatever. So, mm-hmm. and, I, and I know it, there aren't that many, if they're sitting in a restaurant, they're not conducting business. Like if they're in a back room, like in Sopranos, maybe, but walking through the bars, I just don't know what's being achieved by six guys getting paid a hundred grand when there's people out ripping off cars for drug money. Outside. Yeah. So when we walk through, we've had very public shootings mm-hmm. in bars, right in front yeah. of venues, actually just this last playoffs. We had a guy get dragged out at five in the afternoon. The whole place was full at one of the venues yeah. and just starts stomping this guy's head. So we go through, we know those people ahead of time or we'll go up cold and mm-hmm. check IDs. And basically we're seeing conditions. Are you allowed to be in here? Hey, if I do know you, I have intelligence that you're involved. I have mm-hmm. uh, informant information that you're involved. I kick you out because biggest bang for the buck is if I remove you from this crowded place and you go off and you stay home, nobody's getting shot here. Nobody's catching stray rounds. You're also a person who's more likely to commit violence or a high level of it or be the target of violence. So we remove those people from the places because a lot of the venues are actually super scared. Even their security won't go up and tell people to get out now. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of security companies have taken a complete hands-off approach so they'll tell people to leave, but when they don't, they just become a set of eyes that call the police. So you need people to be able to deal with those elevated levels of um, gangsterism or crime, the violence. So that's what those guys are doing. They shouldn't be just walking through only talking to girls. Um, but on the flip side, so you're talking about the guys outside that are you know, open air drug use, defecating everywhere, whatever they might be doing. Um, mm. there's been a lot of, of Fido, so fuck it, drive on yeah. a lot of putting blinders on to things because of those issues, which I would do. Yeah. But it comes from the, the, the policies from the municipal governments or mm. provincial governments right up to the feds. You send people to court or you put them into jail yeah, bail they just- immediately out. Like I, I've had people, we walked into a club, walked into a karaoke room and as we did that, the guy literally tosses his gun across the place to try and throw it behind a couch. Mm-hmm. So that's why we walk through. So he does that. That guy was out like the next day. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's plain as day. He literally has the gun. We have the video, all this stuff. But you know, they're out right away. They're back in the community. But you get that at all levels from mm-hmm. the guys who have money to pay lawyers, right to people down at the you know lowest socioeconomic mm-hmm. level. So, yeah, I just wanted to ask that question because it's burning my ass. As well. Yeah, that's what I was saying. And I, you know, and I also know from my background that. In downtown Toronto has a lot of that issue as well. Like we have a stretch of bars. Like you generally know who owns them. Um, and in fact, one of the criminal defense lawyers who represents them now owns bars. So it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> but we don't do enough of that white collar, like looking at where the money is going and flowing. Like that's what I like to see more. Yeah. Anyhow, there's my side. <laughs> it's you know what it comes down to is a lot of mishandling of intelligence and not not utilizing it properly to direct resources. And that's what it should come down to. Uh, some of the stuff, like some of the videos I've watched that you comment on, you do a good piece on leadership and talking about the people that um, you know are scared to actually sacrifice something when they make a decision. And they'll just mm-hmm. you know put the, the, all the different things now that can go in your um, email signature or... They change their profile <laughs> picture on uh, social media. Like, I think that's a huge piece of what's missing out of a job like this, like the military, like mm. law enforcement. You even look at like firefighters and, and paramedics. You know, it's it affects them too. Um, you know, I think you do a really good piece on that though, and I think people should look that up. Mm. So, what are kind of your thoughts on that? Well, I had some lawyers. I almost kind of got Jordan Peterson. For, for that video. Mm. So the one where I said, I, I confronted the Starbucks with the rainbow in there and I'm like, yeah, you know, and people saying they're on indigenous land. I'm like, are you paying rent? Because if you're on somebody else's land, you should get the fuck off. Like you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, stop virtue signaling and either do something big. But, you know, I, I just get disgusted at weak leadership and I think our system has promoted people who are obedient and compliant and you know what happens in the military? Often, in the military, the best leaders are at war. Like it's not the peacetime promotion system is is one that's bureaucratic. Yeah. And so, for an organization to stay healthy, they have to make sure they actually reward leaders, not rule followers. Uh, but it's 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 a difficult time. You know, I think in Canada, it's a difficult time to be kind of a strong man who wants to make a difference and, and and stand up for what they think is right because you're not even allowed to have a different opinion without being attacked or canceled you know? yeah well and even on that like when you're talking about you know um land acknowledgements i remember i was in a meeting once and there's like six people in there and on face value mm-hmm. i don't believe anyone was indigenous in there and they still read off the uh, acknowledgement and it was such a throwaway piece they just read it, just, yeah, we're here, acknowledge this, that, and the other thing. Okay, anyways, on to business. And I was like, it doesn't mean anything. You just blew past it, and, and I don't think any of you here are Indigenous, and, and this isn't even in a work capacity. It's offensive to an intellectual mind because you know it's almost communist. You know how, like, it, if anybody has kind of read about totalitarian governments, they're, like, forced to read these things that make no sense. And yeah, and you know a government is a society is breaking when obvious things that are true you can't say are true, you know. And so you you end up reading these these ridiculous things or you know creating an alphabet of categories of people that make no sense 
like it, it, we're not able to question these things at the moment to say, okay, what is what is valid, what is needed. I, I get I could see the frustration of every good person just being forced to sit there to listen to stuff that you can tell is not rooted in authenticity. Yeah, I went to um, uh, was it like a play or something with the the wife and they read out one of these um, acknowledgements at the beginning of that. I'm thinking like, I think everybody in this room probably makes six figures and they're not giving any of the land back. And like, it just, it seemed like the most disingenuous thing, but um, I kind of wanted to get more of your opinion on some of these narratives uh, and their impact on the criminal system. Mm -hmm. So this is right from bail reform right through to who we interact with on a day-to-day. Their street checks have been a part of this. What, um, you know, what's kind of your take on the whole uh, race being a part of every single conversation, no matter what level of the justice system you're in? Um, and, and I'll kind of preface this with, I've also had discussions with probation and parole, and they have straight up told me, we won't keep this person in because they're black or we won't keep them in because they're indigenous. Like, never mind the crime they did. They're talking about murders uh, on a phone or trafficking uh, firearms. It, mm-hmm. it's, it seems insane to me. So I, I'm just wondering kind of what's your take on that? There's, there's a few levels to that conversation. Like, I think obviously, I think we're disproportionately focusing on race where we should focus on behavior. You know, and and people don't really understand probab- probabilities. There's a great book called uh, "The Drunkard's Walk" mm. that would really educate anybody on how humans get probabilities wrong and numbers wrong. I used it in that shaken baby case, actually. That was on W five, and I, reading that most lawyers don't read those type of books, but reading that book made me much more effective in court. I think it would make uh, cops more effective to read a little bit more on human behavior and psychology. Um, and all of that, but it, so it, and it, what it, what it, when that becomes the focus, it, it allows mediocre and dumb people to look good by just following the rules blindly, and so it gives them kind of a voice. So it, that's kind of almost what COVID did. It allowed shitty managers to look like good managers by putting more lines on the floor, mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking about what's better. So you, you're always going to find the people who are bureaucratic will will take these these themes and then employ them in a way that doesn't make sense. You know, I, I know a little bit about the bail system. You know, people are detained less based on race, but based on quality of counsel, because the law is clear. You're not to be detained yeah. until you're proven guilty. But too many cops think that they're entitled to just say they should just be in jail. Like it's the sentencing should be harder if it's serious crime. But bail is the de facto thing. Yeah. Like you get released, right? Um, and even detention, if you study detention, look, go into Scandinavia and they have the highest success rate of recidivism, right? And they have the shortest incarceration periods across the board. But I think we spend way too much time putting people who are drug addicts in jail or who were abused as kids in jail, thinking that somehow sitting in, in a horrific detention center is going to make them change their behavior because it's not right. And I, I would like to see less detention and more systems to help people get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then put the, the bad guys away for a fog of a lot longer. You know, 
you know, the ones that we know can't be trusted. Yeah. One of the things, and maybe a bit of pushback I would give on that is I find everybody has the sob story though. So how do you know what is true? Because even some of the informants we talk to and like we know intimately and they are trafficking at kilo levels and bringing guns in by the truckload. They were also abused and had parents doing all kinds of horrific things to them. So it's it's like, at what point do we go, okay, here's another one of these stories. So I, I and I agree, like we don't want just, you know, your everyday drug user who's just out there using personal amounts. Like they don't need to be in the justice system. But where do we draw the line? It's hard to figure it out because you can't ask the institutions mm-hmm. because tw- 15 years ago, they thought everybody with cannabis should go to jail. Yeah. Right. And yeah. if you look at what happened in the States, like law enforcement, conservatives, marijuana use three times jail for 20 years. Like, but what people didn't consider is that the jail system was privatized. So every, wherever I go to, I go follow the money generally. Now yes. in Canada, we've kind of commoditized victimhood. So you can see that like everybody can get cash by claiming to be a victim, but I don't think it changes. Another good book, uh, Free Will is, I think, an interesting thing to read. I read that when I was a crown and even in law enforcement, because it's, it's easy to emnify the people on the other side, like make them into the enemy. Hmm. But Free Will essentially says, it's a controversial book by Sam Harris is, you don't, you don't, you don't really have a choice if you're going to choose vanilla or chocolate. Your brain is going to choose it based on all the environmental factors that have happened in your whole life mm. that just make you more inclined for one to the other. You're not actually choosing it. It's, it's everything. And so when they did a study on pedophiles, like it's an overwhelming majority were abused as a kid. And what was interesting is that especially with male sexuality, a lot of male sexuality is determined by their first ejaculations. So even if you're being abused by a man, because your first ejaculate, I don't, your audience probably didn't expect to hear this, but I, I don't mind getting deeper into this stuff, but it's, no, they'll be it fine. Affects the sexual, it affects the sexuality and then they end up wanting to be close to the innocent boy that was abused hmm. that they were at the times. Because who the fuck would choose? Like, I like good looking women. You know, like I'm not going to one day choose to be a pedophile because I'm a, I'm a satanic person. Like, it, it's the worst thing to be labeled in the world. So you wouldn't choose to be a pedophile because there's no social benefit, financial benefit. There's no benefit whatsoever. So it's not like, oh, I got access to beautiful Hawaiian tropic chicks here, but I'm going to go be a pedophile, right? It's, yeah. So if the choice isn't there, that, that's the question we have to deal with. Like, how did they get to that point? What do we do with them? Can they be rehabilitated? Uh, but, I, you know, so those sob stories, I think we could, we could reduce injuries to children if we made it easier for people who are abused, especially men, to feel comfortable talking about it. But in, instead, they kind of hide it, you know, and it just... Uh, so I, I've worked with a bunch of victims, male victims who were raped by priests and, and sued for them. And learned, most, of the, most of the boys who were raped by priests when they were 8, 9, and 10 raped somebody 15, 16, and 17 when they were that age. Oh, really? Or sexually assaulted them. And... You know, is that because they're evil? Would they have done it if they weren't raped? And then how do you how do you put a justice system on that that makes the victim feel good? You know what I mean? Like it's it's way more complicated. But I don't think we spend enough time trying to find a good solution. I think people just spend a time 
you know, fighting from their, their polarized position. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of one of the things to talk about as well, just the divisiveness in a lot of the things right now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you kind of see us going a little further off the deep end? Or are we just kind of growing apart more, going more U.S. Uh, route uh, in things? Or do you think uh, at least Canadians are kind of bringing it back? The bail issue, just to touch back, the Tamara Lynch trial started this week in Ottawa. Yeah. You know, and to me, that, that woman was denied bail for months and we let out like repeat violent offenders. Like if that doesn't mm-hmm. tell you that there's some politics to bail as well, that speaks to your point. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, but that, that, that'll be an interesting case to watch. We're being polarized because digital media allows for a more, um, more precise targeting of our, of our reptile brains. But when we go onto our social media channels, what digital media and AI is doing, it's allowing computers to completely outpace our brain's ability to choose good information. Hmm. So you know, as soon as they know what your preferences are, you're going to get hit with it. It's not going to be glaringly obvious, but just over the course of a year, you're going to be fed stories that put you into the angrier mode because angry people or upset people stay on the, on the source longer yeah. and they're selling clicks. So you have an entire digitized system that's selling advertising and they need your attention. The only way to get your attention is to make you upset or angry because people don't read feel-good stories. They read them at like one-tenth the amount as anger stories. So if the algorithms can identify what gets you angry, you're going to get those things, which makes you angrier, you know? And so our systems are, that's why I do some of these videos where I'm comfortable pissing off the left and the right, mm-hmm. because the answer is not black and white. It's some version of gray that you have to like interact with other humans to see it from their perspective. And, and we don't see that happening in, in Canada. The news doesn't do it. Well, I was going to say, and it's been, you know, silenced on one side or the other, depending on the messaging, right? They can turn mm-hmm. things off or just have things not show up completely. Like when you were saying mm-hmm. anything about COVID, your podcast get labeled with COVID information. Hey, go mm-hmm. look at this link for real info. And so there's a whole bunch of things that can be done to people trying to put a message out there. Um, I and, and again, and this is why I like some of the messaging that you're putting out because it it's not necessarily to take a side. It's literally just calling things as they are, what's right in front of your face and asking questions. So it's not saying this has to be right or wrong, but hey, mm. this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. Why aren't we asking a, a questions about this? Why are we allowing ourselves to just go down this route and oh, everything's okay? Yeah. So I think I think a little part on that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you know, along those lines, is it's not so linear. It's ironic to me sometimes that hardworking, uh, you know, manual labor class will love some form of conservatism, which is just wants you to be angry while they get tax breaks and make money. Like, and so when I discussed Ukraine, you know, there's a certain element of us who are like, okay, invaded by Russia, we should fight them. Right. And and that's an easy way to look at it. Right. And so if you want to fight them, you're brave and good. If you don't, you're a coward and weak. But when I look at it, (laughs) the media that also censors COVID also promotes wars. Right? Because if you look at CNN after nine o'clock, the advertiser is Raytheon. Mm-hmm. Right? And $300 billion of US taxpayer money, $300 billion plus, has been used to buy weapons from American companies to put yeah. into Ukraine. $300 billion allows you to buy congressmen, 
and it allows you to buy airtime on the news. So what are we being sold there? Like, should we, should people be dying in that war? I don't know, but we should follow where the money is. Afghanistan, we were there 20 years. And, you know, there's one, there's one village that had a bridge there and they were trying to pour so much money in it because American contractors were fixing it. So they used taxpayer money to pay an American construction company, which then feeds it to the congressman's thing. But this one bridge, the brother was the mayor of the town and his brother was Taliban. They rebuilt the bridge 11 times at six to seven million dollars a time. So <laughs> they blow up the bridge. The, 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 the delegates would come in and give the money and an American Bechtel or Halliburton would come in and rebuild the bridge. And the mayor would get paid and the Taliban guy would get paid. And then the mayor would call his brother and they'd blow it up again. They did it 11 times in the same village. Jeez. So our, our men and women get killed over there. But there are people behind the scenes who are making hundreds of millions of dollars. And they love having us angry at each other. Mm-hmm. So we need to think, stop being angry at each other and, and have the discussions. Because, you know, like I have a lot of issues with Black Lives Matter and the Proud Boys and all that. But like, I find if I walk amongst them, I can usually get into a conversation with people that I knew if I took both of them and put them in the same room. Be screaming and shouting. They'd actually have way more in common than they do with their leaders. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, you know. And that's the thing. That's the whole purpose even to this podcast is to get people in and have these conversations. I've had people on that, um, especially when it comes to like the academic world. Generally, academia and police uh, haven't been friends over these last few years. Mm -hmm. And when I just have a person in here and we're talking about the issues, we're agreeing on 90, 95% of the things. And it's like, oh, you're actually a reasonable person. I never would have guessed that. so maybe that's kind of where I want to lead this conversation is back into the leadership realm of things. How do you think we can get more people to step out and be a voice uh, of reason in this world? Like, where are we going to find this? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, uh, this has been a huge change in police, but I, the military has gone this way where they're not bringing in people and and doing the drills and, and, uh, you know, putting them in stress tests and all these kind of things anymore. It's an environment of adult learning and everybody needs hugs. Um, so what, what are we going to do to get people back to that leadership and willing to make hard decisions when they need to be made? Um, you know, I'm sure there's some trite answer of like, do this or do that. But you know, what I told my son is 21. I'm like, if you just think of it from a, practical perspective it's probably never been a better time to be a competent human being right and so yeah rather than lamenting how fucked up everything is and how unfair this is or all of that if you just have your shit together right because i think society is on the downward spiral with that jocko thing right like easy times create soft people and soft people create but what do you do is i think you have to go back you have to have struggle you can't grow as a person unless you, unless you struggle and suffer, whether it's in the gym or trying to do something big. But as a society, it's hard to grow without struggle. And you know, we just have it too good. You know, we have too much wealth. Mm-hmm. It's too good. And so how do you make get that leadership back? I don't know. I think society has to struggle and then kind of show that meritocracy matters. But from a personal perspective, what I say to the people that I know or care about is never been a better time. Yeah. Just, just do the work and all these people who are having, uh, you know, breakdowns and need safe spaces, 
every two seconds are not going to outperform you. Now, you know, I don't know if the military or the police forces are going to start recruiting baristas from Starbucks. I don't know how effective that's going to be. So I'm just, I don't know how to fix it. You're, you know, you're along the exact same lines as what I am. Seize the day, right? You are, mm-hmm. if you're competent and you can get up before everybody else gets up and you can maybe stay up a bit later and, you know, you're willing to put in some sacrifice uh, and, and go through some hurt. Um, I think you're going to be far better off nowadays. So if you are that competent person, you should be looking at this like the world's my oyster, right? Uh, all these opportunities are kind of before me. And I think it, it, one of the things was if we're looking for more leaders, more people to come out, we have to figure out a way to get them to step out of these groups. Because right now, just like you're saying, we have so much and it's such a wealthy society. And I think people just have it too easy. And they're floating around up here at the top. Um, and meanwhile, there's still people who got to do the safety and security at the bottom of that needs hierarchy, right? There's still mm. people grinding away to make the final product for you. And that's, that's being forgotten about. Uh, I think that is one of the greatest uh, tragedies right now is that that's what's being forgotten about. The police, the military, all the people who grind away so that, you know, you can go and change your profile pictures and, and gallivant through life and be, you know, doing whatever you're doing. You know, a little pushback on that I, that I say in mm-hmm. perspective, because like my grandfather served World War II, you know, and, and going away for three and a half years conscripted to die in a trench. Like I joined the army because I wanted to be able to blow shit up and tell good stories and put medals on my chest and make it easier for me to pick up chicks. So I don't think it's that much more of a sacrifice than a hydro line would. Mm-hmm. No, because I got benefit because I could tell people I'm willing to die for the country. That made me look better to people, Mm -hmm. right? Like it wasn't service kind of in, like it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, I have a a Pat Tillman contract of $3 million and I'm going to give it up to go join. It, It was the best job available to me at the time, right? And I chose to do it. I could have chose to be a postal worker. Yeah, It's like you choose to do it and then say, hey, reward me all day long and call me amazing. I, I, what I say is just do your job fucking better. Yeah. And don't and don't wait for other people to thank you. And if you don't like it, then go start a business. But you know, if you're waiting for people to tell you you're you're amazing, it kind of almost goes against the quiet professional thing is we don't do it for the recognition. And I think that yeah, since 9-11, you know, military people have been used as props. Like every hockey game, every parade, they just put some usually a wonk who doesn't even fucking see the business end of a gun, but they're in a clap. People stand up and clap, sit down and forget. Like, I hate that. Yeah. And I know a lot of like, it's like, it's fake. Like you didn't let's recognize heroes who, who got wounded in the line of duty or the thing else I said in policing though is, and in the middle, it's getting more complicated, but you never get an award for not shooting. Right. Like if you look at the social hierarchy in a, in a, law enforcement or military context, you go up the social hierarchy if you get stuck into something. Mm, yeah. Right? But you never become a cool person if you spent a year and not had to do anything with your hands or your like so how do you in your culture promote more complex ways to deal with issues that are less violent when your social hierarchy recognizes somebody who's been blooded? Yeah. And so what ends up happening, especially with young men, is they're kind of you know, we're looking, we're going around hoping we can get into a circumstance, even though it's dumb because we get killed, but we want to get into a circumstance where we can paint a hero picture 
Yeah. Like that's what the culture is. So it's, it's, I don't know. Life is complicated, but I think like having, if I was like a young professional or somebody who's a young officer, I wouldn't do what everybody else is doing. So if everybody else is complaining, I go hang out with people in a totally different culture. If everybody else says this sucks, I would walk the streets and talk to people more. Like uh, find meaning, but don't do what everybody else is doing because most people just get comfort in complaining and then it just brings everybody down. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, man, that's, that's very accurate. I actually think we agreed mostly on that point. Yeah, yeah I think we did. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I said to keep you around an hour, so we're just coming up to that. I want to make sure uh, you get a chance to say uh, how people can follow you and um, you got any other projects coming up. I don't know how much more time you have. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, in September, we have that big court martial, which I tend to shake shit up because the Trudeau government essentially sacrificed one of our most decorated soldiers, General Whalen. Um, because they were in the middle of the election. And so they, they, they publicly humiliated him, fired him. He wasn't charged with a sexual assault. He's now been charged with a bogus administrative. You guys probably have something like it's called conduct to the prejudice of good order. It's kind of like that universal conduct charge you can get in there. Yeah. So they hit him with two of these, a general who's one of the most influential and useful person with, uh, so I'm going to do that. Probably it's going to blow shit up. I helping James Top, that guy who walked across Canada, Warrant Officer James Top, yeah, uh, who didn't get the vaccine. I, tra- I tried to help a bunch of vets who were kicked out for not getting the vaccine, but that's a complicated, complicated issue, and uh, you know it's hard to beat the government. You actually have like a whole, uh, I think it was an hour long podcast with someone a year ago. Yeah, uh, I was watching this, and you talk about this case. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Hart, Doctor Hart. I was on Dr. Hart's case. Yeah, Mike Hart. He's the first guy who got medical yeah. cannabis into, into Canada. He was on Rogan's thing. Yeah, yeah. You were talking yeah. to him about that. It was a really interesting podcast. You know, I, I think what your podcast and what we're doing is we are connecting with people. Like You can run a podcast and get a lot of audience by making everybody angry. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's generally not the people you kind of want to associate with because you become angry. But what you're doing and what I think is so mature and and is you're having a calm conversation with people who have something to contribute and you know and if your officers or colleagues or listen to it you're like lifting everybody up so you're doing a small thing to make people maybe not jump to a conclusion or not be as bitter or you know like so you really do and if more of us can kind of communicate kind of on the rogan lex friedman yeah and all these people who don't sit in boundaries you know, I think that's how we can try and create leadership again and, and change society. And di- the digital world allows us to do it. Um, I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn under, I think on Instagram, I'm called the rogue lawyer, rogue lawyer yeah. underscore, because I, I try to do things a little differently. And um, the, the law firm is millerslaw.com in uh, Ontario, if you have a litigation need, but I can't, I, I get deluged. By people saying, hey, you know, I was fired because I didn't wear a mask. Like, I'd love to help everybody, but I can't help everybody. <laughs> yeah, don't everybody go email for the one little issues. <laughs> but sometimes I tell people also, like, don't sacrifice everything if it's not life and death. Yeah, you got to pick your battles. You know, like, and I think too many people want to sue. And I think as a lawyer, one of the best things I learned was not taking people's money when they want to give it to me and telling them, hey, look, like, you don't need to do this. You know, yeah. because I think people want to fight 
And then there's few people who will tell people it's not the time to fight. Yeah. Hey, I think that's a great uh, place to end it. We're right on time. So, cause I know you got, you got other things you got to get to, but um, you could hang on for just one second. I'll say bye offline. Yeah. I want to say thanks for coming on. I uh, really appreciate the time and we'll look to get you on again. It was awesome talking to you.